from legendary locals we all know to people you should get to know. Follow Ipswich Today on your favourite app and never miss an episode or go to ipswichtoday.com.au. Coming up, an Ipswich Today exclusive. My guest is Lance McCallum, who was elected the member for the state seat of Bundamba at the by-election on March 28 this year, after the seat was vacated by long-serving member Joanne Miller. In this interview, we'll hear the Lance McCallum story and why he decided to enter politics. And we'll discuss what is probably the biggest issue in the electorate, the proposed waste-to-energy plant at Swanbank. It's Saturday, July 18, 2020, and I'm Alan Roebuck. Welcome to Ipswich Today, which acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which it is produced and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. Thanks for talking with Ipswich Today, Lance McCallum. A pleasure to be here, Alan. Now, before we get to politics and the current issues... I'd like to find out a little more about the man behind the name. Now, you're a proud Gubby Gubby man. Tell me about your memories of growing up and those around you that had the biggest influence on your life. So, um, for your listeners that might not be uh, familiar with uh, my mob, uh, the Gubby Gubby Nation, um, our country uh, is sort of north of uh, metropolitan Brisbane and basically goes from the the Sunshine Coast up to uh, around Harvey Bay. So... um, uh, that is uh, uh, my nation um, in terms of uh, my heritage and my mob. Um, but uh, I myself, um, I grew up uh, in the outer uh, suburban suburbs of uh, Brisbane's Bayside um, in the Redlands. I'm one of five siblings um, and uh, we all grew up uh, in a, in a three-bedroom house um, uh, out in the Redlands. Uh, my dad was a public servant and uh, my mother um, looked after us kids. Apart from your parents, who else was in your life at that time? Oh, geez. Um, you know, in terms of um, uh, inspirations to me uh, as a young man, uh, definitely my, um, my parents uh, and my grandparents, uh, for sure. And the usual influences that, um, uh, that any, any person has uh, as they grow up in terms of uh, friends and family, uh, etc., during your teenage years, did you have an idea what you wanted to do then, or you were still wide open to suggestions? Um, probably a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, to be honest, uh, Alan. Um, I grew up in a family um, where uh, it was always um, encouraged to uh, be politically aware um, and to follow your own path, uh, to find out um, uh, uh, about the world for your for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, uh, it was really when um, I started uh, getting to, to university that I was able to engage with that in a, in a formal way. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up um, at school um, in awe of, uh, you know, labour greats like um, uh, Bob Hawke and, and Gough Whitlam and uh, the things that they stood for, whether it was uh, free education, uh, Medicare, um, uh, rights for, for First Nations people. Um, so um, I, w- I had a very strong sense of that. Um, and so this was in your teenage years? You were very strongly into that? Yeah. yeah? Uh, absolutely. I, I 
uh, I have a very strong memory of, of that making a real impression on me. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was brought up uh, to, um, and I think this, this stems from the fact that I'm from uh, a close-knit family, uh, that um, by sticking together, um, you, can, you can make a difference. Um, and I think that, that translated um, in terms of me being able to find political expression um, through things like um, uh, the Labor Party uh, and, uh, and the Labor movement more generally. And what about your working life? What was your first paid job? My, my first paid job uh, was as a pizza delivery driver uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> for Pizza nothing, Hut. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. No. So, um, yeah, back in, the, uh, back in the days when um, uh, we used to have those, um, uh, those sort of waste bags um, or, um, and uh, all the, you know, the, the sort of um, the ones with the zip um, that were, kind of came out in the 80s, I think it was. Yes. Uh, but, um, yeah, I used to run around delivering uh, pizzas. Um, everything was sort of uh, in cash back in those days. Um, which is so different um, to, to how it is is now. Um, after I worked for uh, as a delivery uh, driver, my first um, uh, permanent job, if you like, was uh, part time while I went to, to university. I was very lucky to get this job uh, for Australia Post, um, and I would start work at about uh, 4:30 or 4:45 uh, in the morning, and my day would consist of um, sorting private box uh, mail, so PO boxes, um, and then I would jump in a uh, an Aussie Post delivery van and um, run around with what was called the, the locked bags. Um, I you listeners might uh, recall um, uh, sending mail to, to businesses um, that would say, you know, locked bag. XYZ, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So it was it was my job to um, load up all the locked bags um, and take them around to the, the businesses. And um, I would do that Monday to Friday. Um, my, uh, my employment status was permanent part-time, so I was very lucky. Um, I didn't realise it at the time, but, but looking back, um, I would finish up uh, somewhere between 8.30 and 9, and um, then I'd uh, go to lectures in university, uh, and that would kind of be the, the basic um, uh, structure of my week. Uh, but um, after probably the first year or two at university, um, at the time I got a really strong sense of how lucky I was because most of my, my friends and mates were um, having to work weekends, you know, at 7-Elevens or um, mm. uh, working uh, for um, – a shopping center at a Kmart or something on a, on a Thursday night and uh, doing the, the Saturday shift. Um, so, um, and they were all casual. Um, I was lucky because I had basically set hours um, and I was uh, permanent. So I, you know, I had sick leave. I had um, uh, four, four weeks off um, in terms of recreational leave per year. So um, I, was, I was incredibly lucky. Uh, and after you graduated from university, where did life take you then? Well, um, Life took me to um, working as a as a law clerk um, in uh, criminal law uh, here in um, uh, uh, in southeast Queensland. Most uh, of that was uh, legal aid work in terms of um, uh, people that were relying on uh, the legal aid uh, sector. After that, 
um, I started working for the um, the then uh, Beatty government, and uh, I was a um, an advisor uh, through uh, the Beatty and Bly governments. I worked through a um, a range of uh, portfolios. Um, so that would be your first active involvement in politics. Professionally, I've certainly been um, involved in politics uh, at a um, uh, at a personal level in terms of um, uh, active within the party in my in my personal capacity. Um, in fact, um, I ran for uh, the Ipswich seat of Lockyer uh, back in um, 1995 and lost horribly uh, as a as a young. Uh, I think I was 21 or 22. So, um, yeah, after working as a um, uh, an advisor, um, then um, I worked for uh, the labour movement um, for unions, firstly with um, the Electrical Trades Union um, and uh, then uh, for the peak union body in Australia, uh, which is the um, Australian Council of, of Trade Unions. Um, I also uh, have worked uh, for the Queensland uh, Public Service uh, as well. And that's, that's pretty much a, a wrap-up of, of my, my resume. Well, let's fast forward then to your maiden speech in Parliament this year. You spoke very strongly in support of education, jobs and training, obviously near and dear to your heart. Uh, Absolutely. What are we not doing as a society to encourage people to get an education? Well, I think that... Um, Everyone deserves access to, or the same level of access to education, um, no matter uh, where you are geographically um, or what your particular circumstances uh, might be. Um, I mentioned that uh, when I was younger um, and the things that really made an impression on me was uh, free education. Um, under under the Whitlam government. So um, I think that uh, there's a lot that can be done uh, at uh, particularly at a federal level uh, to um, level the um, playing field when it comes to access um, of education. Um, in terms of at a state level, um, I'm very, very proud to be uh, part of a, a government um, that has restored um, uh, the number of teachers and teachers' uh, aids um, to well over uh, 300 uh, locally in Ipswich, as well as um, opened up several new schools. I mean, I had the opportunity um, recently to go down to the new Ripley Valley State Secondary College, which is just um, an unbelievably great example of what happens when you invest in education. Uh, the facilities are absolutely first rate. Um, it's, uh, it's about $70 million. Um, for for the cost of the school, um, and when you go there, um, you know you can really see uh, how impressive uh, not only the the physical buildings in terms of um, uh, the investment there, uh, but the um, even though it's a new school, it's got this tremendously strong uh, sense of uh, school spirit. So I think that if we can keep on um, investing in education, uh, regardless of what level of government it is, and creating um, these uh, great educational communities that have such a strong identity and strong spirit, I think we're on the right track. Lance McCallum, where do you see the future of TAFEs? Because sometimes they're given a a bit of a bad rap, stories of underfunding. Are are TAFEs part of our education future long term? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that um, not only is there uh, a need for um, strong publicly funded 
um, vocational uh, education providers, um, I think it's absolutely uh, essential. So um, uh, I've been concerned uh, about privatisation um, in the vocational uh, and education sector uh, for technical trades in particular. Uh, nationally, um, there's uh, for people that follow that sector, there's been a lot of reviews, um, there's been a lot of problems in terms of um, uh, some very bad outcomes uh, with um, funding and training. Um, it's been a real pity um, that uh, the the TAFE sector has been uh, defunded uh, at a federal level. Um, but um, on a more positive note, um, at a state level, uh, we've increased funding uh, to our TAFE. Um, during uh, my election campaign in um, March earlier this year, I was down at um, Bundamba TAFE where we announced a $2 million upgrade to the metal manufacturing uh, facilities there. Um, we've got more upgrades uh, on the way and there's been um, a significant investment uh, locally in at Springfield TAFE as well. So um, in terms of uh, even during COVID, um, you know, the education sector, and particularly uh, universities uh, and TAFE, have been uh, impacted in terms of um, sometimes not having students uh, when we're in that sort of hard lockdown. Uh, but um, we were able to move to innovative online um, service delivery models. So um, right now, uh, your listeners can check out um, the TAFE website and have a look at the free online um, courses that are available um, completely free of charge uh, to help people that might have been um, impacted uh, by COVID in terms of their employment, learn some new skills, uh, or even somebody that just um, wants to uh, maybe look for a change uh, and uh, and gain some new skills. So um, I think that uh, we uh, uh, that TAFEs uh, are an absolutely vital part um, of our education sector. Let's move on now to one of the biggest issues in the electorate, if not the whole of the city of Ipswich, and that is the proposed waste to energy plant at Swanbank. It's been called in by the Coordinator General. What feedback are you getting from the community? Sure. So one thing I want to really make uh, very clear uh, about the fact that it's been uh, declared a coordinated project is that in no way, shape or form does that mean that it's been approved by the state government nor that it has um, any uh, state government support. It's a completely independent process. What it does mean is it'll go through the most rigorous assessment possible available under Queensland law, um, and it must go through a full public consultation process uh, and assessment of uh, the project's environmental, economic, uh, and social impacts. Um, and this will include uh, seeking community views uh, as well as a, a full environmental impact statement. Um, so uh, to answer your question about uh, what I'm hearing, um, there have been some uh, concerns raised, uh, certainly uh, around um, whether it's an appropriate um, uh, project uh, to have um, uh, in a rapidly growing area. Um, around uh, whether or not uh, it will be bad for the environment, whether around uh, possible health impacts for the community. Now, I take those concerns really, really seriously um, and uh, I want to work to ensure that our community is as safe 
and sustainable uh, as possible. I mean, the, the issue uh, of waste uh, is one that's um, uh, very important uh, to our community broadly. Um, I'd like to see our society become a zero waste society um, where we uh, avoid um, creating as much waste as we currently do, where the waste that is created is reused and recycled uh, to the greatest extent, extent uh, possible. And um, you know, any kind of waste project uh, can't encourage greater use of waste um, or discourage uh, reuse uh, or recycling or have any negative impacts on the environment. Where do you stand on the waste to energy plant personally? I've had serious concerns uh, raised to me by the community and I share a lot of those concerns. Um, uh, it's up to uh, the company uh, to be able to prove to every level of government, whether it's um, state, federal or local, uh, because there will need to be uh, local approvals as well as federal approvals, but most importantly uh, to uh, the community. Um, personally, I've got some um, concerns over uh, whether or not it's appropriate to have uh, this kind of development um, in a rapidly growing urban area. Um, these kinds of waste activities uh, around Swan Bank um, were approved decades ago. And over that time, there has been a significant amount of change. Uh, people are living uh, closer uh, to uh, these waste activities than they ever had before. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got some concerns. This week in Parliament, your colleague Cynthia Louie, the member for Cook, introduced a private member's bill to uh, legally recognise traditional child-rearing practices in the Torres Strait. Now, this is the first on many levels. We saw some emotional scenes this week. What will it mean for TI families? Well, it'll, it'll mean so much uh, for, for TI families. Um, it's, a, it's certainly a national first. Um, the, the bill that was introduced into Parliament is the first time in Australia where um, a cultural law, L-O-R-E law, um, will meet uh, legal law, L-A-W law. Um, and what it, it means um, is that people's cultural identity will be able to match their legal identity. Um, there's a cultural form of adoption, which is what this bill uh, is about, where um, a, a, a child can be uh, adopted uh, by uh, others in the family um, and, and reared uh, within the community um, where uh, you know, it means that they'll actually adopt um, uh, that surname, et cetera, culturally. So that's how they will grow up. That's what they will, will think their name is. Um, and that's how they will be referred to. Uh, but um, uh, due to the fact that those traditional um, customs and child-rearing practices aren't legally recognised, um, that can create huge problems. Uh, when it comes to the things that most of us take for granted, like being able to get uh, a birth certificate, a driver's licence, bank accounts, uh, etc. So by aligning cultural identity with um, legal identity, that will resolve a lot of that. So this is actually going to um, affect uh, not just uh, children um, uh, going forward, uh, but um, there'll, be a, there'll be a lot of uh, adults uh, that'll be able to uh, finally sort of uh, resolve those kinds of issues. It was, um, it was a really special moment um, uh, to be able to be there uh, when um, my colleague 
Cynthia Louis, the member for Cook, was um, introducing this bill and to look up in the public gallery and um, see people from the Torres Strait that had uh, travelled down to, to witness this moment um, standing while she spoke uh, with tears rolling down their, their cheeks. It was, it was very, very powerful. And when do you expect it to pass? As soon as practicable. Um, there's, uh, there's a few uh, bills to get passed uh, in, in this uh, remaining time of this parliament. Um, I, I, I hope that uh, this bill gets passed uh, as soon as possible. Finally, this weekend marks your first 100 days as a local member. What's been the most significant moment or achievement? Well, the, the most significant moment um, probably happened uh, just prior uh, to Election Day, which was um, when we really got impacted by COVID. Um, it has been such a, a huge challenge uh, for everyone um, individually as well as us collectively uh, as mm. communities um, and uh, as a society broadly. So... Um, it's been uh, a challenge, but also um, incredibly rewarding to be able uh, to be a community representative uh, during that time. Um, you know, at a at a personal level, um, at the beginning of the election campaign was like every other traditional um, election campaign, and then uh, right in the middle of it, um, we it, it all changed so drastically, like it did uh, for all of us. So. Um, uh, being able to uh, assist people uh, through that, uh, being able to uh, to be there for um, our frontline workers in terms of uh, supporting them, uh, particularly our, our healthcare workers uh, who did a magnificent job uh, locally out, out here with uh, West Morton Health. We have an absolutely amazing uh, 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 team of people there. Um, so given, I, I mean, you know, we're definitely not through it yet. We're no. certainly seeing that uh, with, uh, with Victoria. There are some absolutely terrifying numbers um, uh, coming out of uh, Victoria uh, and um, huge amounts of uh, community transmission. That said, um, given the, uh, the careful and considered uh, steps of the government based on the advice of our excellent chief health officer up here in Queensland, we're in um, a great uh, position comparatively. Uh, we want to stay there. Um, and we're focusing on uniting and, and recovering uh, after this first phase uh, of coronavirus. So that means uh, supporting uh, people in their workplaces, uh, creating as many jobs as we can, um, as well as uh, making sure that everyone is um, able to be kept safe um, whilst, the, whilst the threat of coronavirus is out there. So um, it's gone by in the blink uh, of an eye, uh, the first 100 days, uh, but um, uh, the, the greatest challenge uh, absolutely has been coronavirus. Lance McCallum, thanks for your time today and uh, thanks for talking to Ipswich Today. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you and uh, thank you to your listeners. In a future episode, I'll be seeking an expert opinion and analysis of the proposed waste-to-energy plant at Swanbank. The truth probably lies somewhere between the extremist views of protest groups and that of the proponent. 
What is the truth? And what are the real risks to the community? Hopefully, it will bring some clarity to the issue, which has been called in as a coordinated project by the State Government. Ipswich Today is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. You can subscribe for free and share this podcast from your favourite app, including iHeartRadio, or play Ipswich Today from your smart speaker. Suggestions are welcome for future interviews and topics. Just go to the Ipswich Today website or Facebook page and leave a message. Music is supplied by Purple Planet Music. This is Alan Roebuck. Thanks for listening. Enjoying Ipswich today? Please share the love on your socials.